Welcome to episode seven of the Hoop Threads podcast. I got Kyle Jacoby here of uh, Sweat Performance, East Coast Bump, Holly uh, Skill Development. Kyle, great to have you on, man. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let, let's start kind of where it all started with you. You're a McDonough grad. Um, I was uh, listening to uh, the podcast with the, the six man. Shout out to them, by the way, uh, for all the info I got from that review. Um, but you said that freshman year is the first year they started recruiting. Uh, you had eight D1 players and an NFL player in your team. Um, you didn't really start getting minutes until uh, until you became a senior. So talk about um, kind of, you know, how you came about uh, going to McDonough and kind of what you expected versus what, what actually happened. Yeah, my exposure to high-level basketball, um, you know, going into McDonough was Cockeysville Rec Council basketball was the most high-level basketball I'd ever played, to which, like, I was ruining that league. I was dropping, like, 25 a game, and I thought I kind of, like, walked on water. Had never really had any exposure to AAU. You know, my dad, my older brother weren't ever really tied into that, so I didn't have a lot of guidance in that regard. And so uh, I didn't want to go to McDonough. I was actually, uh, you know, I was probably the least happy kid about going there in history. My, my local school was Delaney. All my friends were going to Delaney. Delaney was actually had really good basketball teams during that time. And that's where I wanted to go. And uh, you know, but I was just like, I was just, I was a kid who, when I was in high volume classrooms, I was just like a knucklehead. You know, I wasn't like working as hard as I could. I was getting not great grades at a, uh, school where it wasn't super challenging academically and then so when my parents took me to McDonough to take their entrance exam I did great on the entrance exam and yet my grades were horrible at a very like average school and so I'll never forget the guy who now uh is the headmaster McDonough Dave Ferraise he was just looking at my he was looking at my two things basically my academic history at Cockeysville Middle School and he was looking at my entrance exam and and more or less he was just kind of like oh so you're just an asshole you know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, and so he was an admissions guy at that point. Now he's the headmaster of McDonough. But, uh, you know, that dude took a chance on me um, because really based on my, my history work, I didn't deserve to go there. And I didn't know. I also had no legacy with the school in terms of like family members who had gone before me, things like like my sister had transferred in as a junior. But there was no like long lineage of Jacoby's going to McDonough. Um, and so then that's a pretty big thing there. So I ended up going there thinking I was going to run stuff in basketball. I'd seen their team play the year before, you know, just didn't have anybody I would say was super notable nothing I'd, I felt like I hadn't seen before. And then I walked into school and the first thing I see in a, in a summer workout is this like six, four guy who's just like stripping people at half court, tomahawk dunking, hitting threes. And I, I literally thought it was the equivalent of like walking in and seeing, you know, like John Wall, you know, your high school practice. So I was like, Oh my God, like, this is awesome. Like we have NBA guys come to our gym to work out in the summertime. And I ran up to our athletic director at the time and I was like, coach, coach, like which NBA guy is that? Like which player is he for the wizards? And he's like, that guy's not in the NBA. He's an incoming freshman like you. And I was like, Oh hell no, I'm never going to play at the school. And then I come to realize that the first year McDonough had really gone into kind of like the recruiting and things like that so uh you know I like in my like freshman orientation group I was like this does not look like the basketball team I saw last year <laughs> you know we had we had guys with full-grown beards I hadn't seen a beard in a kid my age my entire life you know as guys that are 6'4 with like 6'7 wingspans and it just ended up being like essentially me from thinking I'm gonna be on varsity as a freshman to I was fresh soft as a freshman uh which like basically is your that's like your death knoll in terms of knowing you'll never play varsity and then, uh, and then I, you know, played JV and then as a junior, made varsity, never even sniffed the court, not even like blowout wins. 
And, you know, eventually by my senior year, I just like worked and worked and worked, man. I was relentless. I, you know, I wasn't mature enough. I didn't have the strength. I was like six feet, 150 pounds when I graduated high school. I had guys who were essentially like fully grown or 95% of the way there by the time we got there. Some guys who were fully grown when they came into ninth grade and never grew again. Um, you know, I was definitely a late bloomer, but I was also surrounded with super talented guys I'd never seen before. It was a huge adjustment period. And it's just one of those things you got to decide like how much it means to you. And, you know, it meant a lot to me and it was, I'd put a lot of time into that point. I just, uh, you know, I just didn't really ever care to quit. That wasn't how I was raised. I was like, Hey, I'm going to give it everything I got and rather fail in humiliating fashion and quit. So I just like, was like, I would rather work as hard as I could and be like, yeah, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> so it just turned out by my senior year, we had a really good team. We finished, I think like third and, you know, in Baltimore. And, uh, I think it was, probably the highest McDonald ever finished actually and had a great team you know had eight division one athletes in different sports and you know really competitive and I ended up earning playing time you know went from zero minutes to start my senior year to where I got up to like five ten minutes a game and I started playing so that so uh, I started playing because the guy who started in front of me who was an elite football player and ended up playing seven years in the NFL Eric King I started playing because Eric was like five nine and he was obsessed with trying to dunk in a game and so the first <laughs> So the first time he gets a breakaway, he jumps up. This is the first time I get in meaningful minutes in the season. And he, he takes off, tries to dunk, goes off the back of the rim. And we had this, like, crazy Irish coach who's now the athletic director at McDonough who lost his mind and hated if you missed a dunk. Like, he was like, if you try to dunk and you miss, like, you were going to get benched for some amount of time. So immediately looking at the bench, he's like, Kyle, get Eric. So I, like, as I'm stuffing in, I go up to Eric, and I just grab him. He's like, he's like, damn, man. And I was like, I was like, e. I was like, you were so close, man. I was like, you were so close. Like, the gym would have gone crazy if you dunked that. So he was like, he was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, man. So I, like, sub in, get my minutes, play pretty well. Next game, we're playing in the game. Eric gets a breakaway. He goes up, tries to dunk, and misses it. He's like, sub. I was like, Kyle, sub. Subs me. And I was like, I was like, Eric, man, things would have popped off that time. You were so close that time. So, like, so I, would, I literally start getting my, my playing time because the guy in front of me is trying to dunk and he's missing. And then I'm playing well on my minutes and I'm encouraging him every time. Like, oh, man, like that was the one. If he had done that, the whole gym would have melted. You know, so that was how I that was how I started getting my playing time at McDonald's as a senior. By the end of the year, you know, I was getting anywhere from like 15 to 20 minutes a game on a, you know, top five team in the area, which was more than anyone ever thought I was going to do there. That's some gamesmanship there. Uh, so talk about like kind of that experience and, and how that kind of led to, to you really grinding and working hard with the time. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's knowing that if you put in consistent time, work, energy over a period of time, like things are going to change. And, you know, things sometimes you can look around and things might change faster for someone else. And, you know, things might change slower for you. Things did not change quickly for me. But, like, I was married to the thought in my head that um, I was going to do that so consistently for such a period of time that even if I developed more slowly, then I was going to catch all the guys every time they took their foot off the gas. And so it was just like, uh, you know, that process, you know, it has its frustrations. It has its times where you question whether or not you're going to continue playing or whether it's worth it or whether there's ever a future for it. But the thing that was just uh, compounded for me was like, you know, an addiction to progression. Like it didn't matter to me if I only got a little better um, over a period of time. But I knew – I, I understood that like my, my progression wasn't going to go like this. My, your progression is like, you know, you have your ups and downs, your times where you question it, your times where it's fulfilling, times where it's not. And, uh, but, but I just like, I, I began to enjoy all of it, 
you know, when I failed, it wasn't like, oh, I failed. It was kind of like, why did I fail? What can I do? How can I change that? Why can these dudes steal the ball from me all the time? How do I get past the guy who's, you know, who's going to be an NFL DB? He who, you know, he runs a four, runs a four, four linear, but damn near runs a four, four laterally too. Like what the hell kind of freak athlete is this? How do I, you know, solve this problem? It just like all those things, you know, that translate ended up translating the rest of my life. But it's like, you end up seeing all these challenges and the adversity is like problems to solve versus just like problems that are, you know, unbreakable and you can't get through them. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was really the, the process of it, you know, was, was putting in that work. I used to have this thing, man, this is no joke. I used to go out and I would shoot, uh, I would shoot baskets in a park. Sometimes I'd shoot them in my driveway, which is the worst. Cause I lit, like the only basket we had in our driveway was like a 45 degree angle oh, like this. So if I shot on the right baseline, it was like shooting on a six foot rim. And if I shot on the ba- left baseline, I was like shooting on a 14 foot rim, <laughs> which probably explains why my baseline threes weren't really like on par with the rest of the court, my whole career. Um, but, uh, but I had this thing where like when the ball bounced, I'd be working out and I had stuck in my head that I could always hear another ball bouncing in the distance. And I was like convinced that I wouldn't go inside until I heard that ball stop bouncing. And like, what it really was was that ball when it bounced, was like echoing off other like buildings or houses, you know what I mean? Like that. So if I was at a park, it was really just that ball would bounce and it was like, you know, noise will bounce off something and come back. So that's what I hear, but I'd be in my head and I was always like, oh man, that little jackass, he's not going to outwork me. I can hear that dude in the distance bouncing his ball. So I'd be like outside just working on my game for obscene amounts of hours. Well, like eventually the only way I would go home is I would convince myself that I had been out there before him. So I was like, yeah, you can try to catch up. You didn't do the quality of work I did out here. And then I would like go in when I was exhausted. But it was like for years of my life, I would always hear that. and It would make me so mad. I think it genuinely took me like 18 months to realize it was an echo Cause I was like, who the hell is this other kid in the neighborhood? I never see him, but he's always working on his game. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Um, so let's talk about, you know, college, he played four years at Gettysburg, um, started all 28 games as a junior, I believe all but three games as a senior. Um, let's look up some stats. He shot 39% from three and tied for the lead in assists. Um, talk about, Kind of your game and your your progression in college, and then um, then we'll get into some of the training. Stuff. Yeah, progression in college um, was, you know, I went to probably the worst possible place I could go in terms of like offense and skill set and the things that I could do versus where I played. We played a Princeton offense, which was just very, very, very difficult. You know, it's run through your big man. There wasn't a lot of options. Um, we ran a very vanilla Princeton. It wasn't like Princeton where you can have opportunities to express yourself. It was very cookie cutter. Um, but at that point I was like, Hey, this is where I am. I had a major that I liked and I was like, let me stay here. Uh, but what I, what I always really valued the most was, was defense. And we actually, believe it or not, we never once well, we did one day. We never once practiced defense in college. We didn't do a defensive drill. We never did a show. We never, like, not once. All we did was work on the Princeton offense. So it was the craziest thing because, like, our coach would talk to us about how we had, you know, oh, we have the best, uh, like, scoring defense. But I'm like, we don't have the best scoring defense because our defense is good. We have the best scoring defense because we limit the possessions in a game. Like, you know, um, I played, I played great defense. I would say I was probably the best defender in our conference. 
and you know, our coach who is like, so it's the weirdest thing to have a coach who's obsessed about the offense and you run a Princeton offense. It just like, was like, if you're going to run a Princeton offense, I feel like you should be really worried about your defense, <laughs> but we did it. Um, and so, but I carved that, I carved that out where basically anybody we played who was a top player, I would always guard them. I was seen as a guy who could like lock those guys up and, you know, like I really embraced that role. I always enjoyed that. It wasn't like that happened to me in college. That was how I was, that's how my dad used to play in like church leagues. That was what I was used to seeing is it was just like, you know, if I had a great scoring game and I didn't play great defense, my dad would never talk about scoring. It was only thing he cared about was like effort, energy, and like, did I do the things that it took to help my team win? And I remember distinctly one time I went to a, uh, you know, I had 25 points in a game and I leave the game and my dad would always be in the gym and he wasn't in the gym. And so like I walk out of the gym and I like, go to the car and my dad's out there. So I already know something's up. I'm already in a call. Damn it. Like what, you know, what did I do? But I knew I didn't play as hard as I could on defense. One of the very few times in my career. And my dad was like, Hey man, as soon as I got in the car, he's like, he was just basically, let me know the next time you're going to like F around and not put all your effort and energy into the game. Because like, I would much rather save three hours on like my Saturday and just stay at home and spend time with your mom and come watch you and whatever you just did. And it was just like, you know, it was awesome because every other parent like in the gym was like, Oh Kyle, you played such a great game, all these sorts of things. And my dad was like humiliated, you know, because I didn't play as hard as I could. And I didn't, I can tell you, I didn't compete as hard as I could, but I took that same energy to college where I would say a lot of parents and, and players, they put so much stock into scoring and that being the definitive value in terms of whether or not you contributed to a win or not. And to this day, man, I, I just don't, I just don't do that. I carved out my way in college by just like playing defense and doing everything it took to win games. And I think even my coach who didn't really understand that or understand me over time was just like, we need this dude on the court to have the best chance to win. And uh, it, it goes to this day. Like if you, I played a little bit of pickup with my guys recently, like my high level guys. And they're, I think they're just confused out there. Like, why the hell does this dude play so hard? You know, and it's just, uh, you know, and that's why, I mean, I'm always just like, it's just how I'm programmed, you know, one day the wheels are going to fall off, but I'm not going to do it going half speed. The wheels are going to fall off when I'm out there like diving for a loose ball as a 40 year old. <laughs> that's when you're going to hang them up. Yeah, I saw that your parents are from Kansas, so that, that Midwestern vibe is, is definitely consistent with uh, defense. <laughs> um, so let's talk uh, – my, my dad is like Robert De Niro from Meet the Parents. If you've ever seen that movie, he's like the most straight-edge, like human lie detector, out of his mind, most competitive dude I've ever met in my life. I didn't see my dad laugh until he was like 45. <laughs> so I read something that uh, your college coach said you introduced a new off-season training regimen to your teammates. Um, and that you also, you know, after practice, your college practice, you would drive like an hour and a half back to Baltimore to train kids. Um, talk about kind of what, what got you started in training and, you know, maybe what interested uh, you. Yeah, so the training was just like, you know, I didn't really know where I was going to go in my life. Wasn't a great student. Didn't know how I was ever going to like make money or like monetize anything. You know, I was perennial, like any, you know, I was like a B minus student. Um, so I was like around two, six, two, seven, two, eight, you know, my entire academic life and sometimes worse, but, uh, but it's just like when you're in that situation, you know, that you're not going to make money playing a sport. Cause I, you know, I'm a division three guy and, you know, and then I know I'm not going to make money, uh, it kind of in my head based on institutional standards, basically not good enough. Then you kind of get in your head where you're like, all right, 
like, what am I going to be able to do? Like, what would someone pay me for? So I was almost like, hey, I'm going to have to do some type of manual labor, something like that, because I know I can work really hard and didn't know what that looked like. And then, you know, I started reaching out to guys when I was a junior in college because I'd always really like training and like preparation and things like that. And I was like, hey, maybe if I can get the right mentors, I can get in the right situation and be around guys that can like teach me to where I can be kind of a lead at this thing. And I know I wanted to, I knew I wanted to teach. Um, I didn't know in what capacity. And I know I cared a ton about sports. And so I wanted to be around sports. And then it all kind of came together with these guys down at Brick Bodies in Baltimore, Maryland. Called them up. They said, essentially, hey, yeah, we'll hire you and we'll mentor you start teaching you how to, you know, like cultivate a following and, you know, all these different types of things. And the guys were legit. Like they really knew their stuff. One of the guys ended up going on to start Under Armour, uh, you know, performance centers. And the other guy was training, you know, like 20 NFL guys at the time and a bunch of the highest level athletes in the area. And so those two guys became my mentors and I would drive down. Yeah, man, I would drive down from practice my junior and senior year. Like after practice, practice might end at six, sometimes seven, sometimes eight. And even if I could only get in for one hour session, I would drive an hour and a half home, shadow an hour session, talk to the guys as much as I could, and then I would drive back. And it just uh, – I was – I would say that I was so concerned about, like, how I would ever make my living or do whatever. Like, I would ask these guys so many questions and, like, just – I mean, I would like interrogate them constantly to try to figure out what I could do to the point where I think these dudes are like, dude, just get away from us. You know, <laughs> like, um, cause I was just like, I just felt like I needed to know, you know, I felt like, um, you know, I felt a sense of, you know, just like, it was a sense of excitement and passion for it, but also just like fear. I was like, yo man, I need to learn as much as I can as quickly as possible so that I can like swim. And, you know, so I would, always go down I would take that time and think like all right like I'm gonna have two years experience two years advantage before all these other kids who are just smarter than me kids that are getting A's in biology when I'm sitting there just like sweating it out you know trying to pass the class so it's you know those are those are things I try to do and then I took that knowledge and I brought that back to um, Gettysburg and I brought the training and the philosophy and all the stuff to our team because everything was just super outdated everything was machine based where you're just hopping on a leg extension and a leg curl and these types of things and I'm like no man this isn't how athletes train this isn't how we move and I know based on how I train myself how I uh how my body reacted and felt the best and so I'm just like you guys are doing this because you read it in a book or in a magazine or somebody handed it down to you over 20 years but like that's not what's going to make elite performance gotcha gotcha so uh, talk about kind of like how you got started, you know, as far as, you know, like as your own business, um, do you have like an intercession with each player um, kind of talk about what goes into that and, and how that uh, the beginnings with an athlete kind of starts now. Yeah. The beginning with an athlete is I have them send me as much information as I can, you know, name, where do they play? What position, what are the things that they need to work on strengths, weaknesses, and then ask for film because I like to see the, I thrive when I work with guys who have uh, healthy self-analysis. There's a lot of like delusional parents and kids. I like to, I like to ask the parents too, if they're involved, you know, what they think their kids strengths and weaknesses are separately. I like to get the information from them separately because sometimes you'll see the kid is like spot on with what they want, but like the parent has like some delusion of like what their kid should be. Or sometimes it's in reverse where the parent is more accurate and the kid is completely delusional about where, but it's like the best stuff is when you have a parent and kid who are both like, they're never on the complete same page, but both pretty accurate, you know, and pretty credible with their response. And it matches to what you see in the film. 
And it's like, okay, these are the guys I'm going to get the best results out of because they're like in a healthy mindset. A lot of guys are like, hey, I want to be this. And I'm like, you will never be that. Like, and even if you want to be that right now, you're, the next level will never ask you to be that. The level after that is definitely not going to want you to be that. So, um, you know, so it's, that's kind of what I do with it. And then if I feel like based on answers, film, things like that, that I see enough to where, hey, let's come in and get you in for your first workout. Then after that first workout, I'm just very honest. I tell people, hey, because you come here and train with me doesn't mean I'm going to continue to train you. I'm not in here like trying to just accumulate as much um, revenue and money as possible. It's going to be a matter of I don't want to dilute the guys that I have in here. The groups I have in here are incredibly talented. You know, I have about 20 kids that I see Monday, Wednesday, Friday right now. 19 of them will go on and be able to make a living playing the game of basketball if they continue to pour their time, energy, and resources into it. And so I can't just put like, a regular dude in there that doesn't have a vision for the next level. That's not to say a division three kid or division three trajectory kid can't join that group. They can, but you need to come in here and you need to be a dog. You need to bring something of value that's going to elevate the group. And if you can't bring that, if your intention is like, Hey, a decade from now, I want to have like some photo op to show my kids like, Oh, I used to work out with these guys. This isn't the place, man. And I'm not the guy. It's not like, it's not that kind of thing. This is uh, this is like survive and advance environment. You know, and if like you're not about that and it doesn't mean that much to you, then I can't put you around these kids because I got guys here where like um, it's going to change the entire trajectory of their life based on what they can do with this game. The doors are going to knock down for them in and out of basketball. And I can't put it down here because it's a it's a fun after school extracurricular activity for you. I'm sorry. There's a place for that. It's just not here or me. <laughs> I feel that. So talk about like some indicators that, that you're able to see, you know, outside of work ethic because I feel like that's easy. What's like an indicator that, that you see in a kid that, that um, kind of shows that he'll be successful? So uh, it can be like one of the things for me is just honestly about their game, you know, how, how correlated it is between what their perception of their game is and what it looks like on film. Or even sometimes it's their body. Maybe it's not in their game. Sometimes I'm talking to them about, hey, you know, express to me positions on the court where you feel like, physically you're like out of whack whether that be your balance or a specific instance where you're going to the basket with strength or not having leverage in certain situations defensively but like if a kid can start to like articulate usually all all guys are slow at first and the reason they're slow to respond is because like nobody asks them these questions ever like ever trainers are just like oh yeah man come in like let's work out then they have no program and they're just like putting them through a workout the kids like oh that's good work today but it's not good work because it's not a program and you don't know where their strengths and weaknesses are and what they need to get better at like i like to talk to my guys about specific situations every single day literally every single day um kj evans comes in jaris walker comes in first thing i say to him is like hey man you hooped yesterday. What did it feel like? Name anything, any situation, any environment where things felt funny to you. Hey, any spot where you're like, ah, oh, that was a little uncomfortable or it didn't feel crisp because we want to adjust that through our program we do with our strength and conditioning. It's just um, – so I'll ask guys that. And as we go along, if we get deeper into conversation, they still can't articulate it. That's a red flag. If they can be articulate about it and start to say, hey, this, this, and this, then I know they're thinking about the game. Then I know that it's not just they're going out and playing and then hitting a reset, working with a blank slate again the next day. I know that they've taken information and stimulus from the games that they play, thought about it, and we're like, okay, I'm going to bring this to Kyle. Or just as a player, if we've never worked together, that they're thinking about that. So I know that's a kid that's hungry to get better, an athlete, competitor that's hungry to get better. And I can help those guys. Yeah. So 
most of the time in an in individualized training session or even in a group one, um, you're kind of looking at either a strength that they have or a weakness that they have. Um, sometimes it's a combination of both, but it kind of sounds like you like really, it's not a shotgun approach. You know, you kind of really want to specialize, you know, one or two or maximum three things that the kid wants to work on. Talk about um, kind of that process for you and, and why you like doing it that way. Yeah. So on like the, on the strength side, I mean, on strength and conditioning side, there are, you know, certain like core components I really try to focus on with our guys. Basketball is a little bit different. I don't feel like there's a lot of strength coaches that get so into the strength side of strength and conditioning in basketball. When to be honest, that's just like, that's just not how the game is and not how the game is played. Uh, you train a kid like a football kid and in basketball, you know, you get strong, 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 strong to the point where it's not an advantage for you anymore. I would actually argue that most guys that are just absolute tanks just stop getting calls because people are like, oh, he's so physically superior that he can handle that. I mean, when you look back and you watch Shaq film, that dude was getting absolutely assaulted all the time. And they just wouldn't call fouls because he, it's like they don't reward you for just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Like they don't. And like the way the game is played and the way you run the pounding, it's going to take a toll on you over time anyway. So it's finding that combination of like, movement strength but like really locking into the things that are huge problem areas for basketball guys um ankle mobility like core stability balance like all these things that are going to give them longevity teaching them how to land teaching them how to jump properly take off properly there's just so much stuff like that um it's key so like those are common things that we'll work on with all my basketball guys um you know for instance i have a kid dre perry from temple right now he started training with me this off season where it's like, Hey, I feel really stiff, like these types of things, his body. And he was like, his feet weren't moving as well. Like not the Dre I knew from uh, Polly in high school, who was just freak athlete, super explosive. And so, um, our big emphasis on him is like, I don't need to get you stronger. You're six, five, 230 pounds in a freight train. Like Dre, like Dre looks like he would be a 10 time all pro middle linebacker. So I was just like, our biggest thing with him was like, get his foot speed up, get, his mobility back folks on his ankles you know make sure that he's getting his ankle health his ankle mobility back to where he can really move because he wasn't moving as well as he used to and it was just like you don't need to get any stronger any bigger you haven't lost the strength battle a single time in college and you won't lose one ever again if i never have you touch a weight so it was about getting him to where he moves better again um then you got a guy like kj evans where it's like okay you're six eight like 107 pounds so <laughs> you know we're gonna so we're going to have you go and do a bunch of strength stuff, get, continue to get stronger. Now, he's not going to fill out tomorrow or in the next year, but just giving him, like, all the core stabilization, the strength, core lifts, things like that to continue to get him stronger, whereas he starts to fill out, he's going to have that foundation set for him. So just, just that's – Sorry, I, I know, like, with basketball players, a lot of the time they're, you know, really tall, long, skinny. Um at least in your experience, do you kind of start with more core workout and body weight exercises with those kids to build the muscle, or do you go to weight training most of the time? Or it, so I don't do a ton unless they're like college guys. I don't do like a ton of spinal loading, like uh, stuff where I have the bar up on their back, so like a back squat or things like that with them until they start to build like a baseline of strength and until they're starting to get until they're st starting to show like core stability stuff like that. So our first like uh several workouts when you come in usually months of workouts with high school guys are like hammering their balance how strong are their legs there's a lot of different ways to train certain body weight things which are wicked the guys are not very good at um and there's super high intensity stuff i think a lot of people think body weight and all they think about is like lunges and things like that like the body weight stuff that we do it's, it's 
I have, I have my pro athletes do body weight stuff. We do it every day. You know, like Jimmy Smith off the Ravens was in here for an hour and a half this morning. We might've touched weights for 12 minutes of an hour and a half workout. The rest was like, Hey, how is he moving? Like really tapping into his core strength and, you know, doing body weight exercises. And he was destroyed when he left here. And he's also, and he's also considered probably the strongest defensive back in the NFL. So, you know what I mean? In terms of like that guy hasn't lost the strength battle in 10 years and the most ruthless game on the planet. Yeah. Talk about real quick about injury prevention and you know, how that's incorporated into scouts or if that's just kind of like something that you tell your guys to do on their own time. No. So injury prevention that like, but when you, when my guys walk in here, the first 15 minutes they do, like it's so I'm a big believer in like habit. Um, I think you got trainers now. They're like, Oh, constant shock, constant shock. And I don't even know what the hell that means because like the greatest people in anything in business, if you look at the most elite athletes in the world, LeBron's Tom Brady's, all these guys that have had incredible success, Kobe, Jordan, their lives are built on habit. Like, their workout times, the way they eat, it's like no different than them breathing. It's like thoughtless at this point because they've done it over and over and over and over again. It's like the only thing that disrupts them is if their habit gets disrupted, at which point they're just like, what in the hell? And they figure out, you know, how to get back on track as quickly as possible. So same thing in here. When my guys come in, there's 15 minutes built out on the front end of every workout where now they come in, they like grab their band, they go through all their glute activation, they go through the ankle mobility, their ankle stabilization stuff. And it's like that part, like that's like your – admission fee every single day to start your workout is your injury prevention. Hey, do all this stuff so that we're you're prepped for your work, but also we've done everything to make sure that your ankles are healthy, your hips are healthy, your body's functioning properly before we go into a workout. And that's just, I mean, that's every single day. Like our kids walk in, like it's almost like zombie, like just like, you know what I mean? They're like, boom, bands here, tissue work. It's just like every single time we go through that. Gotcha. So big, big believer in that, especially with basketball, man, you got to do it guys like, because those shoes they wear all the time. And then as soon as they finish hooping, they always put their sandals on even worse. These dudes wear Crocs now, um, <laughs> you know, it's just all these problems with their feet and ankles and you got to address those. If you're not, you're doing a disservice to the kids and they're going to end up getting hurt and your program is going to be a, you know, largely at fault for that. Gotcha. Three more questions on training. The first one's like, what's a conditioning drill or basketball drill that you've stolen from someone else? really effective in uh, what you do so the drills that i steal um that i would say that i have stolen over the years are always like rooted in the most fundamental things i'm like a big fundamental guy i think if you watch in uh like nba game i think what you'll realize is very few guys can be ball dominant and dribble more than once i mean you even look at like clay thompson's efficiency like he guy barely dribbles and scores all the time so like what I believe in and the things that I steal are generally, it's never like the, you know, like keeping four balls bouncing at once or like, you know, a ton of two ball dribbling stuff. The things I generally steal like, Hey, that was a very simple way. The guys who can, the guys who can simplify the game through their drills as much as possible are the guys that I think are brilliant. And so like, there's a guy down in, you know, I, I can tell you there's, there's actually, I can tell you the guys exactly who I have stolen from over so one is uh, Ronnie Taylor. He's down in Miami. Um, great dude. But just 
like finishes around the rim where he'll start his workouts where it's kind of like, uh, you know, people will start with the old school mic and drill, not that, but he'll start at like an elbow and he'll just go where you're like crossing down the lane to starting at the level, uh, left elbow crossing down the right side of the lane. And he'll start where it's just like, Oh, you got to make like three running hooks coming up right hand. All right. Now, like you got to do the same thing. You got to do three running hooks, taking off your opposite foot. Now you got to do like three Euro step floaters and you're all working that left elbow. So you'll get through like, seven different finish variations to start your workout where it's all kind of like half speed and then you'll end up taking that and you'll work it off in the left elbow so like before the workout really even starts you know now you've gotten like 30 40 50 finish stuff uh you know inside finishes working all sites sorts of things inside outside of your body floaters things like that and i'm just like you know it's a brilliant way to start your workout a lot of people they get so into like the shots the step back step back pump fake like just all this crazy shit and they never actually take the time to go over the fundamental stuff which is like hey man can you finish outside your body in the lane no cool you're not going to be very good <laughs> like, so so uh that's a guy that's great. Um, one of the guys I'd say is really well known that I, I've taken a couple things from over time is Drew Hanlon. He's brilliant. Um, you know, pure sweat basketball. Uh, one of the things I've taken from him is hip swivel. So I'm a big guy and like step through to, to meet pressure, beat pressure, all those sorts of things. But he does some stuff that's pretty dynamic in terms of putting your dribble down with a step through in terms of getting your hips back around to attack downhill. Uh, so his, his hip swivel teachings he does out of a step through. I think that stuff is really, really, really good. Um, I have no shame in saying I've stolen that directly from him. And then last guy I'd say is there's a guy, Andre Battle, out in Chicago to some different ball handling drills he's done out there. Um, he, he's actually the only guy that I've ever supported a two-ball ball handling drills from. So if you ever see any video footage, anything like that, of me ever doing two-ball ball handling stuff, that is all stolen directly from Andre Battle. He's the only guy where I've ever been like, yeah, man, I think that stuff makes sense and I see a value in it. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So I guess the two, two well stuff. Uh, what's uh, what's a criticism that you grew from the most? Uh, just ex uh, expecting other people to move the same way I move. You know, I think uh, that's big in the basketball world. It's it's you know, not everything I do is the right way. I think sometimes you can get kind of like locked into your head of like uh, your like what your dream or what your vision is and you can kind of I think it's human nature to like impose that on other people or like kind of like hey the values they should live by or what they live by and and, and I, I don't think I'm like I don't think I'm the holy grail of values or anything like that I, I think I'm actually like a super weird dude <laughs> but uh, but you know it's sometimes when people or, or people in your circle or people even on your circle and they do certain things and I would say I like mo for most of my life I would say I was pretty harsh on relationships um you know just in general when i felt like they moved in a way that was different than the way i felt like it should be done and i think in the past like two to three years specifically i've learned how to uh just adjust and figure out okay that's not in alignment with the way i feel and have a discussion about it you know and just try to understand why that person thinks the way that they think and that's that's done a lot for me in the training world you know like i would say 10 years ago i wouldn't have had the mindset to do that with a kid and now like a kid I can kind of see like we have a disagreement on something and I try to talk through to figure out why they're in that thing and a lot of times what I've realized is like you know whether that kid's a high school college or, or it could even be a pro I'm like you know those dudes are brilliant 
Like they do things at a very high level. They're successful at a very high level doing certain things. And like when they can explain it to me and articulate it, we have a, like a dialogue about it. Sometimes they come back and I'm like, Hey Dan, no, no pal, the way you're talking about it feels way better. You know, that's way cleaner. Hey, I shouldn't have done that. Um, and other times I'm like, damn, man, like I really understand your point of view right now. I was just kind of thinking of it from like a very narrow vision. And after you explained it and it's just, you know, it's helped me to grow a lot professionally. Um, and personally as well and, and hold a lot less kind of like grudges I would say earlier in my life I was super sharp with stuff where I was like if somebody did act it wasn't even just like hey don't like it it was like boom you're cut move on and just kept everything super tight and it's like now I'm better at like hey you know yeah they don't move exactly the way I'm moving these things but they do so many other things I really appreciate you know as a person or competitor or a client that you know I want to keep them around and see value there and so last one um, as far as criticism and, and motivating your um, your athletes goes um can you talk about kind of your approach to that um and maybe how that's evolved over time and um yeah just talk about that i think that the, the number one thing that got people overlook when they try to motivate their athletes coaches trainers parents anything like that is people speak uh they speak from what they want too much you know, I think dads will speak for what they want for their kid, but they're not, they're never like talking actually to their kid about, um, it's, it's not based on the kid's beliefs or the kid's intentions or the kid's vision. It's based on their own. And so, you know, when like I start to train guys, I get to know them. I'll ask them questions to start to paint a picture for me of like what matters to them. And so like, I'll give you a specific example. You know, this is maybe seven years ago, um, training a group of pro athletes in uh, Ray Rice's pool. And so, you know, we're, I'm going through the different athletes in the pool and I'm asking them, you know, what motivates them? Why do they play the game, right? While they're going through pool conditioning. So all these dudes are like dying and like running in the pool and all that stuff. And so, uh, so the guys in the pool is like Ray Rice in there, Ben Grubbs, Tory Smith, Jimmy Smith, Darius Webb. You know, it's, it was crazy. It was like eight guys in there. They're all just studs. They're all in oh, CJ Fair from Syracuse. You know, it was, it was a cool group. And we're going. And so, uh, you know, I asked Ray. I was like, hey, Ray, you know, like, you know, what do you play for? And he's like, man, obviously this isn't how we will be remembered now. But he was like, I want to be remembered as one of the most dynamic running backs to ever play the game. I want people to think about, you know, Marshall Falk. Ray Rice I want them to think about me in that category when I you know I want people to just be like hey man that was that was one of the most dynamic guys to ever play and I was like oh yeah you know so we go so like in my head I know I'm going to use this for the future I'll get to that in a second so then ask Jimmy Smith I'm like I'm like oh Jimmy I'm like I'm like what you know what's in it for you man like how do you want to be remembered he goes what he goes man I don't give a care he's like I don't give a fuck how I'm remembered he's like I'm trying to get paid right so, so, but it's great, right? Each in their own respect, it's great because like we go into their workout, you know, next week we're in the training, you know, Ray shows up to his workout late, right? One of the days. And I was like, I was like, Hey Ray, don't need a trip, man. It's all right. And I was like, you know, I heard Adrian Peterson shows up late to all his workouts late. So it's all good. I mean, I, you know, he doesn't really work that hard. You know, they write articles about it, but I'm sure it's all good. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure he shows up 17 minutes late. So it's not good, man. I'm sure they'll remember you. You're going to have a great legacy, man. So like the rest of the workouts, he would just be going so hard rest of the week and be on time. But it's like, you, I was speaking to what mattered to him, not to me. You know what I mean? That like mattered to him. So it's like painting a picture for him where it's like, that's how I get him to like lock in and be in the mental, you know, space I need him to be in with Jimmy. 
it's like we'd be going through an agility drill and like a lot of times I'll incorporate ball, things like that. So I like throw a ball to Jimmy coming out of agility drill. He would drop it and he kind of shrug it off. And I'd be like, oh man, like that was a $750,000 drop. I'd be like, if you feel good about it, I feel good about it. Three quarter of a million dollar drop. I mean, it's not a big deal, man. I'm sure you can live with it because money doesn't mean that much to you. I was like, but you know, for most people that three quarter of a million dollar drop might feel kind of bad, but let's go ahead. Next rep, man. Just shrug it off. It doesn't mean anything. So like, so, you know, like then he would be totally locked in. But um, I would say that my criticisms or critical feedback with my guys is always rooted in the things that I know that matter to them. It is very rarely, there will be times when it is rooted in what matters to me. Um, but I would say the majority of the time, the reason I get the responses I get, the results I get is because the feedback that I give my guys is rooted in what matters to them. And then they want to go hard because they you're speaking their language, you're speaking what matters to them, and then it's like reminding them of why they're doing what they're doing. Gotcha. And and just talk really quick about the, the importance of motivating um kind of supporting your guys too when they're going through a difficult time or maybe a story that you have um where you know, a, a guy was, you know, just lacking in confidence. Yeah, I mean, I like that's a big reason you know, my guys continue to train me, train me over the years. So, so like the longevity of guys I train is wild. You know, like a lot of the guys I train, they don't like, um, it's not like they're like here with me on a Wednesday, somewhere else on a Tuesday, somewhere else on a Wednesday, somewhere else on a Thursday. Like my guys lock in with me. It was like, bang, bang, bang. And they want to be there. And a lot of that is because of like that unconditional, uh, support, things like that. You know, I would say, um, I mean, there, <laughs> there's a ton of them, there's, there's so many instances over the years. I would, I, you know, the, the most glaring one I could ever say is, you know, when Ray went through his uh, domestic violence incident and, you know, I think a lot of people switched up on him when that happened. And like, just the way I was raised is very different to that. You know, I was pretty outspoken publicly about my continued support of Ray and his family and that caused some backlash around here. And I frankly didn't care because, you know, I felt like people in the community, uh, even the NFL, the Ravens, uh, people who were, were businesses who had endorsements with him. It's just like, I felt like the second that he didn't fit their convenient box, everyone like ran for the Hills because it's a money game and everyone is just like, Oh man, I'm out of here. And it's just like all these same people who I'd seen talk about family, 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 family. And then it's the second that you do something that's a blemish, right. Or a black eye and everyone runs. And I just know, like, the way I was raised and how I grew up, like, I did a lot of stuff many times to, like, humiliate my family, you know what I mean, or, like, embarrass my dad. But his response never once was, like, you're not a part of the family anymore. His response was, like, come over here and brought me closer, right? And so, like, I never believed in a family situation, no matter how bad something was, where my response to that would be, like, oh, hey, man, now it's inconvenient for you to be family, and so, like, when Ray went through that, I continued to train him, continued to just try to make sure every day we were, like, talking about positive things and building because when you go from the most beloved person probably in sports history in your community, doing more stuff for your community than any guy had really ever done to hated globally overnight, that's a pretty big fall. And it was amazing, man, because I remember the day that they ruled, uh, you know, when the video came out, and, you know, it was instant, like, obviously his, his career was going to be fried at that point. 
Um, I told Ray I was going to come over that night and I expected, you know, it was all the time people couldn't wait to be over at his house and all these people would be over there and all these types of things. And so after work, I was like, I got to get over there. I know there's going to be like a hundred people over there, but I just got to get over there and just like say what's up to him and talk to him a little bit and just let him know, you know, I'm here if he needs me. And the funny, not the funny part, the devastating part about that is, is I went over to his house after I finished work at sweat. I got over his house at like eight o'clock at night. There were like 10 cars outside. I was like, yeah, I knew there was going to be a bunch of people over here. And when I got inside, it was Janae and 10 players wives sitting on the sofa in the TV room. And Ray was sitting by himself at his kitchen table with his just head in his hands. And so it was just like a testament to me of like, when everything's going well, there aren't a, there are never too many people who can get in your corner, who are supporting you, who are your family, who love you, who are your friends. But when everything goes south, when it's not convenient for your friend, who's there? Because the least convenient, the least convenient time in history to be in that dude's circle, no one was there, right? And so I showed up, and five minutes later, one of his longtime friends who trains uh, with me at Sweat, Courtney Green, he showed up too, and it was me, Courtney Vray, on the worst day of his entire life. Right. And so like after that, I continued to bring them to sweat. I was making them work out sometimes one-on-one sometimes I was making them work out in our adult groups just so we continue to have social interaction because our people here were always so appreciative. We'd always been so good with their kids had always taken so much time to do stuff that there was actually an article put out at one point where he had credited, uh, you know, myself and sweat for like really just like saving his life. And so like, I would say that's the most extreme situation of like when things get thick or things like that, or things are really bad for my guys. Like, I just don't shy away from that. You know, I'd have been embarrassed if like, you know, one day we all got to, you know, we all got to hit the dirt, man. If I'm sitting there and I'm like, damn, like when things got tough for my guy, I just like ran out and disappeared. I, I don't know. I don't believe in that life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I think people misunderstand, you know, the fact that, you know, you're, you're still there to support him doesn't mean that you support him. That you, did. And, yeah. you know, and that, that's something that really is possible. No doubt. So moving on to East coast bump. Um, this past year, St. Francis beat Oak Hill by 19. Um, up on them pretty much the whole game from what I heard. Um, and Polly ended up being uh, IMG by two with uh, Raheem's layup, you know, at the buzzer. Well, not at the buzzer, but the last couple of seconds. And uh, that was kind of a coming out party for Brandon Murray. Talk about the importance of those games for the area and kind of what it meant to you and what it meant to the area. Yeah, I mean, like, that was – that was one of the – coolest nights of my life personally um you know but uh I think you know I think for our city just to have a game where that I created that game not a lot of why I created the game was stuff that I'd seen wrong and I just uh I don't really I don't know that I ever had an intention of like running an event but I'd just seen events where I felt like they weren't run well where people really hadn't taken care of the teams it hadn't really had a community cause. It was always a money grab. It was guys that weren't even really in the basketball community that I was seeing run them. They were kind of just like coming in and clearly there for the money would like, I don't know, wear really expensive clothes to like the meetings with coaches and stuff. And I'm just like, you're not a basketball guy. You don't care about the basketball game. You sure as hell don't care about the kids. And then I'd always see them just like, you know, try to like butter up the best players from each team. And I was just like, it just, everything about it just like rubbed me the wrong way and smelled funny. And so my whole reason for wanting to run the game was really rooted in uh, just wanting to do something where it was great for the community. The fans had a great experience. The kids felt like they were on a huge stage that some of those kids who maybe weren't going to get the chance to ever play a high level college or play college at all. were going to feel like they were a part of something really important and special and like, and, and historic. 
and I feel like every kid deserves an opportunity to have something like that. And I know that they would cherish that stuff. And so that was the goal when we went out and, um, you know, the way, the way I marketed the game, if you look at it, was never really based around stud players. I did very, very little content about uh, East Baldwin or Justin Lewis, who would have been very easy to market the game around because they were the two big names in there. I don't think I put up anything about Ace, actually. Maybe one thing about Justin. Um, you know, instead I was marketing the whole game around the guys that I didn't feel like were getting the exposure that they deserved. And I feel like our community and our basketball community really rallied around that because everybody's so quick to focus on making the money, right? Or like generating this money that they're trying to focus the things around the kids that they think will generate the money versus like focusing the energy around the kids who like deserve it and earn it, who haven't gotten an opportunity yet. Like at this point, Ace is going to VCU. Justin's going to Marquette. I don't need to let you know about Justin and Ace. Everybody knows Justin and Ace are going to be there. That's cool. If I need to announce to you that Justin Lewis and Ace are playing in this game, then like, you know what I mean? Then you shouldn't be at the game. So, so, uh, you know, I really just wanted to do those things where it was like trying to feature guys, do it a little differently, run the game at a super nice venue, have a ton of security there. So any type of person can go, it was really important to me to have a diverse demographic. Baltimore is one of the most like racially divided cities I've ever been in. And I travel a ton, uh, maybe Chicago, Chicago's not great with that either. Um, but I just like, I have friends, like I deal and I deal in all different types of communities like I have friends in all different types of communities I wanted everyone to feel like they could go there and be safe I feel like so few places do that whether it's restaurants venues things like that I want everyone to go and be like man like everyone can go out here enjoy high level basketball be entertained be taken care of feel like they were taken care of as a fan feel like the kids had a great experience know that the schools were taken care of know that there was a community tie because it just doesn't happen like <laughs> it definitely doesn't happen in this city so yeah gotcha so talk to Talk to me about how, I mean, so I'm from upstate New York and there was, I can't remember what it was. It was, but we were talking about one of the players from Polly or St. Francis or one of the teams. And I was like, yeah, the DMV is stacked. And they're like, whoa, Baltimore is not the DMV. So kind of talk about how, and I think that that's something that Baltimore also feels. And they're like, nah, that's y'all thing. Y'all can have that. And it's kind of like a little brother mentality. To kind of talk about that relationship uh, between Baltimore and, and the rest of the DMV, specifically Baltimore and DC, because you know that there is a pretty big rivalry. Even though some of these kids grew up together and you know played together. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, there's no doubt that there's a rivalry between between Baltimore and DMV. Um, you know, I think anyone who said otherwise would be, you know, would be lying about it. Um, you know, that's not really like I would say so much on that's not where my, I would say my energy goes. My energy is on getting our kids the hell out of Baltimore, making sure they have great resources. I would say that a lot of the success, um, you know, a lot of the success stories in Baltimore, whether they ever became that or did not and should have been successful were not like, it wasn't a product of not having the talent. It was a product of like bad dudes infiltrating circles and getting in with kids. And I know, like, uh, you know, DC, DC has those uh, has those issues as well. Um, but it's like the talent here. That's that's really why, you know, I, I try to spend so much time here is because I know like what Baltimore is about to do if it has the right resources and right people dealing with some of these kids. And it's become an everyday battle trying to cut out some of the fat, some of the toxic people, and some of the people who are trying to monetize kids. Um, 
but I would just say like, you know, for me, Baltimore versus like you talking DC PG. I mean, in terms of like long-term success, like they've had more success. You know, I would say, I would say the PG and I, by P, they, I'd say PG DC has had more success at the highest level in terms of like more success stories getting to the highest level. I think that like statistically that's a fact. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> so it's like, but I think the solution to that, like the difference there is talent. The difference there is like building out the right resources and infrastructure. And that's why I'm at Poly. That's why I deal so much with, you know, Sam Brand and Anthony Fitzgerald. I started to do a lot with Mookie Dobbins who, you know, he runs team thrill up here because those are guys who are doing the right things, building things the right way, being really healthy. It just so happens we have a lot of grown men. And again, not to say DC does not, but, um, we have, I would say, a lot of grown men who have gotten over the years kind of like a stranglehold at a young age with some of these kids. And it's been like we've been loosening that up, and people don't like that very much here. But when we like, as we continue to take that over, the amount of success I think Baltimore has over the next 10 years is going to crush anything it's had previously. Because now we got the right people building the right things, the right kids, the families are seeing that things are different here. And, you know, and, it's also going to prevent Baltimore kids from going down to DC to do stuff like AAU. Cause they're going to be like, Oh, this is better than anything down there. This is better than anything anywhere. It's actually the best thing is right here right now. And it's right down the street. And when that happens, things are going to boom. But as far as historically, I mean, it, I think anyone who would really say that Baltimore's production of high level talent is superior to DC's. I just think that's fraudulent as hell. I just don't think that you're speaking clearly. I think you're speaking out of pride and not actual, uh, you know, historical fact. Yep. Yep. Uh, I heard a quote from you where you said, you don't go, you don't grow through success. You grow through failure. Um, talk about, you know, the competitiveness that you have and that you want and the kids that you work with and kind of wanting the smoke versus a controlled environment that, you know, doesn't expose your weaknesses. You know, you don't play, you're not trying to play against rank, you know, other ranked players or other ranked teams, you know, you kind of just want to, play the fluff and boost your stats. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that there's a lot of that that occurs. So, you know, kind of talk about the, the – it's kind of an old, old school approach of, you know, wanting to smoke. Yeah, I mean, you have guys out here now with this whole, like, social media kick, all this sort of stuff where it's like, hey, like, one kid gets – a kid gets, like, fried in a pickup game or fried in a workout. Sure. And, like, you know, then people get upset with the videos out. And then they want that person to take the video down, and it's just like – like, what are you talking about? Like, the real solution is not to take a video down. It's to, you know, teach your buddy or your son or your player to play defense. If they play defense and they learn how to play hard, compete hard, they're not going to be on there getting fried for two straight hours, you know? So it's like, um, I'm just, I'm a big believer in, you know, that's also going to build your threshold. Like, you protect somebody now. They're sooner or later when the lights are on and everybody's watching and that person is going to fail. And if they're not, like, if they haven't built up a threshold and a tolerance for what failure feels like, how to deal with it, how to navigate it, they are going to crumble. And then they're going to crumble when there's more eyes on them than ever, which is, like, the best thing to do at a younger age is, like, expose them to as much failure as possible as to where they build up a tolerance for it, as to where, like, eventually you're going to be so focused on winning and also understand the pain and frustration of losing and failing that you're just going to be relentless and like your approach and how you compete trying to do everything it takes to win. But like I would, the amount of parents like 
with high level kids and things like that who just try to like expose them only to the environments where they feel like they're winning, where they, where they feel like they'll have the path of least resistance, where they'll start as a freshman in high school, where like, it's just like, you're like, that's a death wish on that kid's career. Like a death wish on that kid's career. You know, look at our, look at our, uh, you know, most successful athletes at the highest level. Like none of those guys came through. Like you're thinking off top, like reference them again. You talk about Jordan, well-documented his failures early on and throughout his career and how that drove him. Uh, you look, look at Tom Brady. Like that man didn't even like play at Michigan until he was a senior, ends up being whatever he was, a six-round pick. You know, his failures are well-documented. Uh, you talk about LeBron. Like LeBron was obviously a stud when he was young, but he went through so much. Like people forget all the trauma and stuff he was going through young in his career, the pressure he was on when he was like losing. And you could just tell like emotionally and mentally it was like he was very, very disrupted. And, you know, it, probably his beliefs and values were challenged a lot early in his career completely different human than he is now but that's because he, he experienced a lot of his failure later on but like he still went through it and and the reason he is such an incredible force now is because he went through that and he fought through it and got through it but the level of, of protection that these guys try to do with their kids i mean it's embarrassing man it's like i mean it's just like it's like trying to keep your kid from falling on the ground or getting a bruise or like things like that. Like, man, they're never going to understand what true adversity is. They're not going to understand what pain is. They're not going to understand this is an, this is something you play through. Whereas this is an actual injury. You're not like, it's just your whole perception of like, you know, reality is going to be completely distorted. And then how do you expect that kid or that person to ever be successful? Not just in the, like scrap basketball like in real life at some point man as a father or a coach like you're not going to be around you're going to be in the dirt that dude's going to have to survive on their own and what they're going to survive and wait for the next person to roll out the red carpet and make sure that like they never get touched and they never face adversity that's just not going to happen that dude that dude might as well die with you like it's just it's yeah it's it failure is a part of the game man i mean you talk to anybody successful in business sports they're never going to talk about how success made them successful or how their successes made them more successful. Everybody's like, man, I hit this rock bottom. I failed and failed and failed. Couldn't figure it out. I failed 30 different times. You know, I almost went bankrupt. I went bankrupt twice. And then I built this hundred million dollar business or $10 million business. Or, you know, it's guys where it's like, at some point you're just going to, you're going to hit your rock bottom in your life. Everybody will. And it's like, okay, boom. Like, how are you going to rebound? How are you going to navigate that? If you don't have a tolerance for that, you're not going to rebound from it. You're going to stay there or you're going to drop off completely and it's, you know, lights out. Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's very typical coach speak to talk about adversity and to talk about work ethic. But I think, you know, a lot of people don't talk about that resolve to bounce back. I mean, people talk about Jordan's game-winning shots, the famous poster. I said he's missed 26 game-winning shots. And, you know, he's failed over and over again in his life, and that's why he succeeds. And I think that's a really underrated aspect. Um, two last questions. What's, um, what are kind of your methods for reining in players who, you know, aren't particularly locked in the workout, maybe they're not listening, maybe they, they kind of have a superstar mentality? Um, you know, what you – know, that's something that you just – you know, I know Coach Brand is, is kind of big on, you know, running them to death. <laughs> if, uh, you know, if there's – stuff going on academically they need to talk about yeah so as far as i mean as far as here i would say um 
I, I have a great situation now. So the level of which I have to reel a guy back in is very good. Like I shut down, I've shut down a lot of guys who are high level guys to come here. Like by the same notion I was talking earlier about not letting in kids that really are kind of in it for fun or, you know, maybe don't want to have aspirations to play in college. That doesn't, that doesn't change because you're talented. I'm not going to bring you in here because you're a highly talented guy. If you're a highly talented guy who has a lot of baggage, I don't want you here either. So like there are guys who get paid to play the game who I don't want here, who I've not allowed here. I've told, Hey, it's not a good fit because I can't have you around these guys either. Like the, the relationships with these kids is way bigger. So I would say the, the degree to which I reel in what's different here is like, I have elite kids who are very high character guys. And if like, if you came here and you weren't a high character guy and you were super talented, you'd probably not want to come here anymore because the other guys wouldn't be messing with you. They would just be like, no, man, like we don't do that. That's not how we work. That's not how we approach it. So like there are times when guys come in and they might come in a little bit late or, uh, or I can see like early on that they're not uh, as locked in as normal. And so like, this is something I have not really been able to change with myself. When I, when I see that happen, I like, this happened on this happened yesterday actually i kind of felt everybody and our whole plan changed because i saw the way people were moving and i felt like people were trying to slow roll me on a monday morning and so i i immediately went to the opposite side of the spectrum i was like okay now we're gonna move bang 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 bang, bang. we were doing this started talking fast moving them fast like i just brought my energy so far up where i was like hey this is the way we're gonna do it either you're gonna tap out and leave or like we're gonna work like this and everybody just like raised their level um but i, I would say that i go I go opposite side of the spectrum with the group. And because the group collectively is like so driven and motivated and talented, like it's going to, it's always the majority of the group who now will rally around that. Now it didn't always used to be that way. So like um, back, back when, when I would tell a guy wasn't reeled in or when a guy was totally locked in, that's what I would say reference before. Whereas just based on our conversations with him specifically, I would start talking to him about the things that matter to him and remind him like, Hey, why we're doing it, why we're there, you know, what we need to be doing, how maybe this has been a problem in the past and how we had had a conversation about how we were going to try to correct it and remind him that, Hey, right now is one of those times that we said we were going to avoid, you know, going forward. Like you and I sat in my office together, one-on-one spoke to each other like men. And you told me that, Hey, this is a problem I need to get better at. And I'm telling you right now is a time and opportunity for you to get better. And if you did not have an opportunity, you're going to get worse. And if you take it, we're going to get better. But you know, like if you do say no and you don't want to do it, that's cool. I probably just don't want to work with you anymore. Like, it's just like. What, um, what sets Coach Brand and, and Polly apart and what have you learned from him in your time there? And then last, sorry, also attached to that, um, talk about, you know, as your role as a trainer for, for them and for your own business, um, kind of your role in, in their recruitment as far as reaching out to coaches or field coaches. The difference with uh, just being with Polly and, and, you know, Coach Sam is that guy just pours, pours his life into those kids, man. I mean, he'll – there's a lot of coaches who like to glorify their wins or their record and all these sorts of things, um, and that's why they're doing it. You know, at the end of the day, they want to feel like they did this or had these accomplishments they can share or kind of put their chest out about. And it's just like none of those things are – are relevant to Sam. Like Sam wants to win. Sam, Sam is, uh, you know, hyper competitive. Um, don't get me wrong about that. But, you know, when you talk to him about the success of Polly's program, what he talks about, he's going to talk about guys who, you know, came from really like high adversity backgrounds and went on to, you know, uh, certain professional careers in their life where they're doing things that 
you know, first person in their family to graduate college, first person in their family to go and start their own business, do their own thing. Like, you know, he'll go on and on about stories, kids who went on to go make, you know, political impact in the world. And it's just like, those are the things like when you get him talking about those things will go for hours and hours and hours where he can just like talk on end about it. Like that dude, um, you know, my first season there when I saw former players, not even former players, former students, and they came back to school, like that, that guy is so invested, not just in the kids he coaches, but the kids that are around those kids, the students of Poly. I mean, if you see Sam in at a Poly basketball game before the game or after the game, there will be about 100 people that will come up and like hug him or they just came back in Baltimore for a day. And they're like, Coach Sam, they'll like run across the court with like five minutes before the game goes to hug him. You know, it's just like, it's just a completely different vibe. If you ever see him after school when like the final bell rings and he's getting out of teaching a math class, I mean, like regular students of Poly, all the coach Sam, coach Sam, like just like dabbing him up, hugging him. I mean, the guy, like one of the biggest hearts I've ever, you know, I've ever been around in my entire life, like genuinely just wants to see kids be successful, wants to see, you know, every kid get a, get a fair crack and a fair opportunity and is willing to sacrifice his own time, energy, resources, sometimes like happiness, uh, you know, to make sure that they get those things. And so, like, the second that I saw that, could feel that, watch him in action, like, there's no other place I want to be, man, because this is the stuff people preach, but they don't live by. This is the stuff people talk about, but they don't execute on, you know, and he's out here doing it every day, sacrificing all these different things for everyone else. And that's the first time that it ever really made me, you know, I always felt like I did that and had trouble finding other people who did that. And Sam is the first person I've ever been around where it's like, damn, man, like, Kyle, I think, like, you can do more. Like you can do more, man. Like that dude's doing more than you. And I, and I can honestly say, that I don't think there's ever been another time in my life where I met someone who I felt like was more invested in these like individual kids and helping them, um, you know, helping them build out a better life for themselves until I met him. And I was like, yo, I got to get my shit together. So well, he's that bouncing basketball for you. What was that? <laughs> he's that bouncing basketball in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Um, Last question. I, I really liked the tweet that I saw from you. Uh, I believe it was yesterday. No, it was earlier this week. Um, you said, if an athlete trains with me one time, I have no claim to their success. If an athlete trains with me a thousand times, I still have no claim to their success. That is always the athlete's conclusion. Of um, talk about that and you know the importance of that to you and in your craft. Yeah, so I think um, – you know, for me, it's the kid, the athlete does the work. You know, I can, um, there's obviously work involved in my end. I can build what I feel like is the blueprint, put the things together, things like that. But at the end of the day, nothing, that needle's never going to move um, without the athlete doing the work. You know, that's the one part. They're the one coming in, sacrificing their time, um, you know, coming in, putting in the energy, doing all that sort of thing. Like, the other part of that is, uh, it's just like, people are so quick to like want to occupy credit for something. It's, you know, you work with someone one time and now they're part of like your, like as a coach or trainer, they're part of your player list or part of your client list or like the person you're claiming you had impact on. And it's just like, that's not really your space to claim you had impact on another human being's life. Like, I feel like that would be weird for me to come up to you one day and just be like, just be like, Hey man, I did this, this and this for you, which made your life better. Like, if that's true, you would say that to me, you know what I mean? Or you would say that about me to someone else. But I like in this world, there's so many guys where it's like, 
as quickly as they possibly can, you want to get a picture of someone. As quickly as you possibly can, you want to get a video of them, even though maybe you really haven't had any impact in their life. Maybe they worked out with you once and they hated the workout and really didn't like you as a human being, right? But now it's like, you know, you're talking about, you know, that, oh, this is my guy, like my, my dude, like family or whatever. And it's like, eh, like let them say that. You know, I think people are so quick to like try to carve out their place in someone else's success, um, you know, it's just like an odd thing, you know, KJ Evans, right? He's training with me right now. KJ, I truly believe will one day be an NBA lottery pick. Do I believe that KJ Evans never would have been an NBA lottery pick had he not met me? No, I, I believe he would have been an NBA lottery pick, you know, no matter like kind of who he fell in the arms with. I feel like there's a lot of stuff I bring to him to, that can give him like little tweaks to make his career easier, create more longevity for him. I do a lot of stuff with him outside of basketball completely to make sure he can like navigate his circle and filter out potential problems. But, you know, is that dude, is his lifetime success, lifetime income based solely on the fact that he came in and worked with me? Listen, the dude is six, eight. He has a seven foot wingspan. You know, he has like very crisp feet. He's a super highly intellectual kid. He was raised the right way by his mom who put in values in him where he's humble as hell and works super hard. Like I had nothing to do with any of that. That dude came out of the womb with like built to play the game of basketball. You know, it's like for me to claim any of that success, like if KJ ever feels like I have anything to do with that, like that's on him to bring up. But like he was going to get there with me or without me. He's going to make seven plus figures playing the game of basketball with me or without me. Same thing, Jairus Walker, same deal. Who would I ever be to claim any level of success with that? Jimmy Smith, I've been working with him for eight years. You know, Jimmy might tell you, hey, I've had this impact on him, but you know, end of the day, he's a 6'3 DB who's 215 pounds, runs like a cheetah, moves really well, has a great knack. He's tremendous attention to detail. I didn't, I didn't do those things for him. Like he did those things when we met. I just helped him see things a little differently. Uh, you know, challenge him certain ways and not just in here, but in his life decisions he's making that will create the longevity, help to keep his mind fresh, everything like that. So that he can play the game as long as he wants to play, make the right decisions on and off the field, keep the right people around them, you know, build out a healthy life for himself. But it's just, uh, you know, it's just like the job of a trainer or coach is to put your guys in position to have the lives that they want. It's not to, it's not to like uh, anoint yourself as like giving them the assist. And it's just like, I don't, I don't quite subscribe or understand like why or how like other men, women are just like so quick to just like carve out a part of someone else's success is their own. Like I'll, I like, I'll be happy for those dudes when, you know, I'm happy for my guys when they get the opportunities that they work for, the opportunities they earned or build out the lives that they want. But I'm never like inside or outside, never like, yeah, man, like that was me. Like, that's me right there. It's just, I, I just don't understand that. I think it's a discredit to the amount of work and sacrifice those guys put in. I see my guys an hour and a half, two hours in a day, you know what I mean? Multiple days a week. They got 22 hours a day where they decide how great they want to be. If I train them three hours a day, they still got 21 other hours a day. Like, I don't care how much time you spend, man. There's a lot of other things that go into that. Um, I think, I think, I think if you want to play that game, then they have hundreds of people in their life who could claim their success. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them for sure. And last question, maybe the three like underrated players in the area or um, your, you know, like Twitter follows that, that most people don't know about, but they add a lot of value to what you do. Uh, my three most underrated players in the area? Sure. Is that what? Okay. Uh, 
I'd say Kai at St. Francis, Kai Staten, I think I think that kid is an animal. Um, I don't understand how you can drop 20 points on Oak Hill, be incredibly efficient, basically do like precision surgery on them for an entire game in front of, you know, 20 Division One coaches and you leave that game without an offer. That's asinine to me with some of the kids that I see get offers and this kid did that and you could walk away genuinely and your heart feel good about not offering that dude. Just mind-blowing to me, like mind-blowing. I don't know for the amount of like interest I've seen colleges give certain players and to leave that game of that magnitude and watch a kid pick apart, you know, 10 plus Division One kids. I'm just like, okay, just – you're thinking way too hard. Um, he's a, and he's a winner. Uh, Trey English, uh, upcoming senior at Poly. You know we had Raheem Ali's going to Howard this past year. Trey will be the point guard this year. Trey, I mean, I've just seen what he's doing, playing against super high level guys. Uh, you know, guys that are playing Big Ten basketball. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, top college players in the country. Trey's an animal. He's unbelievably fast. He's five eleven slash six feet. That stuff scares college coaches way more than it should because then you'll recruit some 6'6 point guard who's trashed and soft, can't do anything, but he looks good on paper. And then, you know, and, and, and then Trey's going to ruin, ruin their life. So, you know, I see what he can do. Um, guy gets just so many steals. He can get wherever he wants on the court, finishes really well around the basket. He's developed a nice jumper. So, I mean, like, I'll just feel so ashamed of our Baltimore schools, Baltimore-based schools, if they don't offer him because, like, I know that he could help them all instantly. And I think that, you know, obviously our schools around here can get a bad rep not recruiting super well or aggressively in the area considering the hotbed that it is. Um, so he would be he would be another guy that I would say with that. Um, you know, both those guys are – both those guys are 2021s. Um, those are the top two that come to mind for me right now. I'd say one other one is uh, – uh, Jalen Bryan and John Carroll, you know, they, their, t their program isn't as strong as it was a couple years ago. I don't think he's getting the same looks. It's going to hurt him that they didn't have AAU this year, but Jalen makes stuff happen. He wins scores, passes, does a lot of things really well. I don't think that's uh, Jalen Bryant. Yeah. What year is he? Uh, he's, he's an upcoming 2021 as well. Point guard, um, you know, and, and he's kind of that tray frame, you know, he's sitting right around six feet. Um, but I mean, again, make stuff happen, man. He's starting to get some, gen uh, some interest from, you know, that those low, uh, low level D one schools. And, you know, I think that that dude's a winner. I don't think that he's able to show off what he can do from a dynamic passing ability the way he can, because, you know, that talent's not really there at John Carroll right now to do that. So a lot of the brunt is on him to kind of be a scoring point, whereas naturally he's kind of like, he can put the ball in the cup, but he's at his best basketball and he has other guys where he can do that, open up the floor for himself and his teammates. And, you know, so he's another one. So I would say those three guys, Talk Jalen Bryant, Kai Staten, and uh, Trey English. Gotcha. And uh, I mean, I, I'm kind of out of questions, but uh, you know, I'm going to give you the floor if you have a soapbox topic that you want to discuss or uh, issue with uh, parents or people in circle that you want to address or <laughs> any any pro Baltimore state you have. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I mean, in terms of the kids, I think like. Uh, you know, I think it's really important just if any kids are watching this or the parents, like letting your kids get exposed to diversity, like making them fight through things, making them find their way around it. Um, you know, if as a parent or as a kid, if every single situation that happens, it's bad to you as you're looking at it as this is what someone else did. You know, there's only so many bad situations that happen to someone. It's like, uh, you know, to me, that's like the number one indicator of someone being an addict. 
Like if what they do is they talk about like everything around them that goes wrong all the time, all the time, all the time. Then I'm like, Oh, there's something going on that's way deeper than this with you. Or like you have some type of crutch that's going on in your life because you know, you have to train your mind to where you're like, the, the most successful people are going to look back internally at what they can do better. And if you're always pointing your thing, at, Oh, this coach, or, Oh, this person, or Oh, this kid, or, it's like, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. So as a parent or as a kid, expose yourself to adversity. And when you go through it, no matter how authentic you think you might be or credible, you think you might be in your concerns that a coach is playing favorites or a coach doesn't like you or this, that, and the other, it doesn't matter. You need to look internally and figure out, Hey man, what truth is there to the things that you can do to get better. And if you do that, um, you know, that's going to help you a ton. And the last thing I would just say is be, be so strict about your circle. Like you should be able to look at every single person you spend your time with and you should be able to write something down to their, down right next to their name. One single trade. I do this every single month for myself that they bring to your life that helps elevate you. And if you can't write something down next to their name where you're like, Hey man, this person brings this positive energy. It's helping me get to my vision down next to their name. They don't deserve to be in the notebook. And so they don't really deserve to carve out a lot of time in your life. All right, man. Great having you on. A lot of, a lot of awesome insight. Appreciate the time, man. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. All right. Take it easy. Stay safe. Okay.